Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to the first part of a special two-part podcast mini-series, if you will, that I'm calling In the Middle of It All. Some new research on middle managers and compliance. I'm really pleased to have two experts who have done some research, some vitally needed research on the topic of middle managers and compliance and behaviors. And we'll get started on that. I'm going to introduce them in a minute and we'll go through some questions on a recent article that was published in the publication Organization Science title of the article that they produced was Middle Managers and Corruptive Routine Translation, The Social Production of Deceptive Performance, which is a mouthful, but it is really interesting. And I think that you're going to find that it is. And as I said, this is a two-parter. We got going. So I'll present the first part this week, and then please tune in next week for the second part. As always, please subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments, questions, suggestions. We're always open to that. And keep paying attention. We're going to have some more interesting things here in the feed over the holidays. Thanks so much. And with no further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our special guests. We should also note that there is a second author on the paper who helped collect the data for the study. His name is Joao Vieira de Cuna, and he's head of research and associate professor of information systems at IESEG School of Management on the Lille campus in France. I am really pleased to have two distinguished academics here to talk to us about middle managers and some really interesting, interesting data that they came across in some some recent research. Again, the title of the article that we're going to be talking about today is Middle Managers and Corrupted Routine Translation, The Social Production of Deceptive Performance, and that was published in Organization Science back in October. Linda Trevino, PhD, is a distinguished professor of organizational behavior and ethics in the Department of Management and Organization in the Spiel College of Business at the Pennsylvania State University. She holds a PhD in management, which contributes to her unique understanding of ethics as a management issue. She has published many articles and also co-authored three books on topics related to organizational ethics, integrity, business ethics, and other related topics. She's been elected a member of the Academy of Management Fellows, and Professor Trevino has taught students at all levels and presented to many diverse audiences. Her views on business ethics have been quoted in the press, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Businessweek, and other publications. She's also appeared on television and discussing these topics on CNBC. Her research focuses on the impact of individual differences in ethical culture and organizations. She maintains an active research program with current research That includes a focus on how scandal affects leaders and organizations and moral advocacy in ethical decision-making groups and emotions in ethical decision-making. Ethisphere has also named her one of the 100 most influential people in business ethics for 2015. The first author of this paper 
Nikki de Neuenberg is an assistant professor of organizational behavior and business ethics at the University of Kansas. She holds a PhD in management from the Rotterdam School of Management, Erasmus University, the Netherlands. Her research focuses on understanding unethical behavior in the workplace. This includes work on social status that drives unethical behavior, the role of social structure and moral disengagement, and work on identity and legitimacy challenges that ethics and compliance officers face in fulfilling their ethics roles, something that many people are interested in. More recently, Nikki has also started a project to examine the challenges that dyslexics face in the workplace and how they deal with those challenges. She's published in Organization Science, Organizational Behavior, and Human Decision Processes, Annual Review of Psychology, and in the Journal of Business Ethics, and recently won the Best Business Ethics Paper Award sponsored by the Journal of Business Ethics of the Social Issues in Management Division of the Academy of Management. Prior to earning her PhD, Nikki worked for KPMG Forensic in Brussels, Belgium, as a consultant in ethics management. So we're very pleased to have these two distinguished ethics researchers here to discuss their recent work. Welcome, Linda and Nikki. Hi, Eric. First to you, Nikki, one of the main conclusions you have reached in your research is that when the right conditions exist, mental managers can engage in a process to make or adopt routines and structures to make it look like their employees are achieving goals when they're actually not. Can you talk first a little, a little background about the research, but then talk a little bit more about this concept and what you learned? Yeah, sure. First, also, I would like to thank you guys for giving us the opportunity to talk to you. Linda and I have specifically in the past year or so started thinking we need to find better ways and more ways to reach out to practitioners and people in business to share our research with them. And so this is a really excellent opportunity to be able to do so. So thank you very much. So about the study itself, so it's essentially what we call an ethnography. So somebody in our team went and spent 15 months in a telecommunications organization to watch people work. And when he got there, he found that people were being made to engage in unethical behavior and being forced to do so by their middle management. And so obviously to us, that was very interesting phenomenon. So that's what we wrote our paper about. And what we found that was that managers in this particular unit were very heavily involved with finding opportunities for their subordinates to cheat and with developing uh, sort of patterns of work, which are sort of the more academic description of what a routine is. So they were trying to figure out ways for their employees to make, take advantage of those opportunities to cheat. And they were forcing their employees, mostly through shaming practices and other heavy performance pressures that they were imposing on their employees to take advantage of these opportunities. So managers actually played, middle managers actually played a, a really big role in making it, you know, deceitful performance possible, both by identifying opportunities for cheating in the, in the organization and for finding, for developing the sort of work routines that took advantage of those opportunities. Well, and this let me say, as a repre- the representative of the compliance and ethics community in this conversation, I think that we're really pleased to see, and I'm really pleased to, to help introduce more empirical research and knowledge, because um, I think intuitively, a lot of compliance and ethics professionals understand these linkages, but there's heretofore not been, at least not not readily available to the 
profession a lot of empirical information that allows them to put a little bit of science behind what they maybe intuitively understand. And so this is, it's, it's helpful to see research like this when it comes up to aid in the ongoing practical concerns that a lot of compliance officers see day to day. I'll just jump in if I can. This is Linda. One of the reasons that I think this is a really important study is that we were able, because our colleague was actually there on and off a lot for 15 months and observing day-to-day activities in the organization, we were able to see what was happening at that middle level, which is often just not captured in the kind of research we do because it's just hard to see. So people tend to focus on what top managers are doing or they tend to focus on what employees at the bottom are doing, but they don't see, you know, that process that occurs and middle managers role in it. So I think it's a really important study because we got the opportunity to to actually observe what was going on and bring it to light. Right. And connect the dots sort of between top management expectations and what happens in the middle and what happens at the bottom of the organizations, you know, to have a picture that looks at the whole of the phenomenon. That really leads into the next area I wanted to talk about, Linda, and that's if you go back a few years and look in the, the literature and the commentary and white papers in, that come out from compliance and ethics professionals, there was a lot of talk, particularly if you go back 10 or 15 years, about tone from the top, particularly mm-hmm. right after Enron and, and WorldCom and all of the, the debacles that happened at the beginning of, of this century. But to me, what's really interesting that started to bubble up and where this research is really helpful is people are talking more and more about tone from the middle or tone throughout. And one of the phrases I really like is this notion that culture is local. Mm-hmm. So the culture is really formed by those managers that are, that are there, that are actually interacting on a regular basis. After going through this process, and particularly this most recent research, is there any question at all in your mind that middle managers are more important than mm-hmm. senior leadership when setting the ethical parameters for the rank and file? So. I think they're really both important. So senior leadership plays an important role. They do set a tone. I've been involved in other research. I have done a lot of research on something we refer to as ethical leadership. Other colleagues have found that the tone that ethical leaders set trickles down through the organization. So it's picked Mm -hmm. up by those middle managers and and then they create those local unit cultures. In our setting, the senior leadership was key as well because they're the ones who set the impossible to achieve goals. Yes. And I think if we, you know, if we think of an example that's been pretty hot in the news for the last year or so is, is the Wells Fargo example, similar mm-hmm. kind of thing happened there. So you had senior leadership setting impossible to achieve goals. But what the research also generally supports is the idea that the leader who's closest to the employee is the most important in terms of driving that day-to-day ethical or unethical behavior because they are the ones who are putting the pressure on. They're the ones, in our case, who are develop, you know, are finding those opportunities and developing the ways for their employees to to get around, you know, 
the system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're the, they're the ones doing the shaming that Nikki referred to. So it's, it's really those managers who are at the supervisory level closest to the employee who are having the most impact on a day-to-day basis. In the end, I think they're both important. They work mm-hmm. together to create these outcomes that, that we see. So employees are there at the bottom trying to make sense of all of it, but the pressures and the directives are really coming, as you say, from their supervisors. When you mentioned Wells Fargo, one of the things that I found very interesting about Wells Fargo, and I'm curious about your impression, is that pretty consistently, particularly Mr. Stumpf, who was the CEO when he was testifying in front of Congress, talked about the culture of the organization and their, the, it was pretty consistent with the other executives of, the, of Wells Fargo as to the importance of culture. If mm. you've got conflicting messages, if you will, coming from senior management, one on one hand, we have these impossible goals you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And on the other, we have these values and these, these ethical standards that we have to adhere to. Uh, something's got to, it seems to me something's got to give. And does mm-hmm. that, in that situation, it seems like the middle managers and, and the rank and file are kind of left, for lack of a better term, to fend for themselves. I'm kind of curious about those kind of conflicting messages and, and what you see in those circumstances. Well, Linda, you want to take that? Yeah. yeah, I think that's, you know, that's when, I think the Wells Fargo example is a really good one there because employees were getting conflicting messages. They were going to ethics training programs where they were told about the reporting system and they were told that they weren't supposed to engage in these sorts of behaviors that people were engaging in to to create accounts for people, you know, who didn't want them. And so some of those employees, in fact, more of them than perhaps we would expect, called the hotline, mm-hmm. you know, because they were getting instructions to do that. Yes. And, and then the people, you know, who were engaging those behaviors were getting fired. But at the same time, the remaining employees were getting pressure to, to, to meet, meet the their numbers. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think it, for those employees, it's very confusing it's very frustrating if they if they have the opportunity to leave they will i think a lot of them at wells fargo it was not necessarily a, a t- easy time to get another job and it, maybe it was that you know in our case in our study the employees felt that you know they were in terms of their pay and their situation they they probably couldn't go out and find a a, a better paying job and so they felt stuck and and they're under so much pressure that that's what ends up having the most impact is those very close situational pressures where in some cases at Wells Fargo, uh, the managers were calling every single day mm-hmm. to say, yeah. you know, how many accounts? How many accounts? And, you know, the employees really have no choice but to right. succumb to that if they're mm-hmm. going to stay there. Right. My sense is also that surely because it's so much just daily in your face, the performance pressure, that really no ethics training can can beat that for for most people. They'll just become 
you know, because it's also ultimately very personally unpleasant to have to tell your boss, you know, every day, you know, that you're underperformed and all of that stuff. So it's a, yeah. it's yeah, a high, was high pressure. Terrible. Yeah, yeah no, so it's a, I mean, and uh, I remember Linda emailed me a little video of some Wells Fargo managers that were, like, lower-level managers that were being interviewed, and they were crying about the pressure that they had experienced at, at Wells Fargo. So this is a horrible way to have to work. So, so yeah, ethics training becomes very moot at that point, I, I think. Well, using the, the example from your research, Nikki, it, very similarly, the research in the case that you all were researching, the managers went to some extreme lengths to, to try to achieve those goals, or at least in this particular case, they actually didn't achieve the goals, but they made it look like they did. You know, from your research and, and cases like Wells Fargo that we're talking about, is this an anomaly or do managers and employees, you know, go to such lengths and engage in these efforts on a, reg- on a consistent basis? Well, we've, we've had the opportunity to, obviously, both of us to teach MBA students. And so I've often talked about this research with a whole bunch of my MBA students who have had previous work experience. And also our current studies has had some feedback from folks across the internet, let's just say. And we've heard a lot of stories that, that people recognize these kinds of pressures and these kinds of workarounds. And, and, and goals are intrinsically motivating. So even without true performance pressure or without incentives, people just enjoy reaching goals. So goals mm-hmm. are, are a very powerful management tool. And, and they can work wonders for organizations. But yeah, when performance is, when this organization is very much focused on performance, people will go through great, great lengths to, to reach the goals, even, even in the absence of, you know, bonuses and, and things like that. They just want to be relieved from the pressure. They want to look good. Uh, they're worried about their future career in the organization. And so, no, unfortunately, I do not think this is an anomaly at all within organizations. And, and, and uh, Linda, another a key factor that jumped out at me when I was reviewing the article talking about the research is what, what you all characterize as onerous administration requirements, which in my mind was, I, I thought about a lot of compliance <laughs> controls that I've seen over yeah. the years. I think compliance controls definitely fall into, into that group or can anyway that lead to both managers and employees circumventing those, those controls or those administrative requirements. I'm curious if you found that even sometimes very small roadblocks, like I'm thinking about, you know, like password protocols, security protocols that are avoided or ignored, if that can add up and, and build a culture where avoidance and noncompliance with protocols and administrative requirements is just understood or accepted. Yeah, that's not something that our research really, this particular project really speaks to, but there is evidence in the research literature for people exerting effort to get around roadblocks. You know, they create workarounds, and sometimes those are unethical workarounds. In in my own organization, Penn State University, I sit on an ethics committee, and I sometimes have talked about this, and I have a thing about what I call stupid rules. Mm-hmm. Every organization, I think, has them. They're usually rules that are onerous, they're unnecessary, and people go to some lengths to work around them. 
when we first instituted ethics training online here, I I thought it was a little bit funny, but <laughs> not really that funny that I heard people talking about cheating on on the ethics training, which I, you know, reported at my <laughs> the next ethics <laughs> committee meeting because it was too long. Yeah. And so and and so they've made changes, you know, as a result of that. But yeah, people it's it's I think it's human, it's normal, and and I think that ethics and compliance professionals need to be aware that people will do this. And they need to ask people I think they need to ask people, you know, what are the stupid rules around here that you all are trying to create workarounds to get around. And, mm-hmm. you know, what can we do as an organization to, you know, to make it run more smoothly and, and to make your life simpler with the understanding that we want everybody to do their job ethically. And, I, you know, I think people would work with them to do that. But mm-hmm. I, I've, I've actually never heard of an organization actually do that. No, I think that that's that would be a laudable exercise for, for mm-hmm. particularly for mature organizations with a lot of systems. You see that a lot. Related to that, Nikki, sort of the same concept is this in the in the uh, article. It talks about ignoring these rules or tools when they interfere with goals. You know, Linda's talking about trying. You know, getting rid of stupid rules. Is that consistent with your thinking that you know organizations ought to identify? these areas where the the rules might conflict with goals and and try to resolve those in a way that works for you know both having compliance but also recognizing the practical realities if you will yeah no i think that's that's very important because you know we have to take a step back and think about why do these rules and process prescriptions and performance management tools and things, why do they exist? Ultimately, they exist because upper management and higher level organizations want to exert some kind of control over lower levels and how the work gets done and what type of work is done and, and, and all those kinds of things. And so if you're willingly and only have rules in place that people cannot work with, then you lose the ability to monitor and, and influence your organization. So I think there's a huge benefit to the organization itself to try to identify these places so that their own sort of influence on the lower levels of the organization remains intact. There was also a report a number of years ago about the military where, for instance, they had a bunch of training prescriptions in the military, but those literally did not map onto. There were way many more prescriptions and trainings that they had to do than the days that were allotted for training. And everybody knew that. And still everybody signed off that they did all the trainings. And I'm told by folks in the military that this has a very depressing effect on morale and on, you know, on still believing in the organization that it's so well known that everybody is basically lying about complying to training prescriptions. And I'm told that the military has done something to, to sort of mitigate this problem and that finally, you know, people's signatures actually retain meaning again. And, mm-hmm. and folks in the military have told me that this has had a huge boost in, in for the culture for people to think, yeah, Finally, we're taking this seriously again. And finally, you know, training is meaningful and compliance is meaningful. And we're not all pretending that we're all perfect. And so, yeah, no, I think it's both for uh, upper management ability to 
influence and monitor lower levels of the organization, as well as sort of for the worker happiness and morale amongst those lower levels, plus to avoid poor unethical behavior. I think it's very fundamental that we figure out where those conflicts are and try to resolve them. Yes. And I think that there's an acknowledgement generally, we've talked a little bit about training. I think there's an acknowledgement generally, generally in the compliance community that training as it as it has been, particularly online or computer-based training, as it has been produced over the years, it doesn't really meet the anticipated result <laughs> with, okay. with a lot of populations. And, and I think there's a concerted effort to try to rethink or reimagine how we train and how we communicate to be more practical about how, how people are going. Because I almost feel like, and you, you can make mass generalizations, but I almost feel like you're better off not training the population on a particular topic if you know going in that the training is not going to be effective. So right. it's, a, it's, it's a real problem. Yeah, I'd love to jump in here because this is, this is one of my favorite topics. Okay. We have no idea whether or when ethics training is effective because mm. there is really no good research. I've been talking about it for as long as I can remember and <laughs> trying to get organizations that I think might be willing to actually assess their training and its effectiveness. And the only time I got even close was a really good organization that had a very good program and a very good culture and did a little pilot tra- training assessment. What we found out was that they actually didn't need to train everybody every year, that people who'd been around for a while really understood Mm -hmm. the rules and the culture and had a very good sense that had good attitudes, had the, you know, understanding of, of the rules and the culture and, you know, all the things that they wanted them to know. And, and when I told them that, and I said, isn't this good news? You know, you could use your resources in a different way. The response was sort of like, well, we still think we need to train everybody every year. So everybody has seems to have this, I don't know where it came from, assuming it comes from the sentencing guidelines, although they don't say that, but it's become, it's become the norm, it's become the routine in the industry, and people feel like if they're not training everybody every year, then somehow they're, they're not doing their job. But they don't know if it's effective, or as you say, if it might actually be worse than doing nothing because people are hating it so much and finding it so onerous. So there's, there's really an opportunity there. And if anybody in your audience is interested, they need to (laughs) call me. (laughs) No, that's, that's great. I I, know. I I totally agree. I, I think I've seen some individual organizations here and there try to dynamically measure effectiveness. And usually they, what they'll do is maybe do a sample, take a sample six months or a year after a training and, and ask some questions, maybe scenario-based questions to see if they've retained anything. Mm. But uh, it, it's few and far between, I think. I, and, and I think the kind of all hands, we'll do this every year, this is a forced march approach, yes, <laughs> it exactly. is, is, is litigation a mitigation. You know, I yes, think it's a, right. it's, a lawyer, it's a lawyer-prescribed activity, which many lawyer <laughs> lawyer prescribed activities don't don't end well <laughs> right i agree with that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. 
Well, I hope everybody is finding this interview as entertaining as we obviously did. As I said, this is part one of a two-part episode. The second part will be uploaded next week. So please join us for the conclusion of our scintillating discussion about ethics and middle managers. As always, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Please rate us on iTunes if you have time. We sure appreciate it. And as always, get in touch. If you have questions, comments, suggestions for the future, you can find us at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com. We're always interested in what our listeners have to say, what your concerns and questions are. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.